one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So how did everybody mark the occasion at 12:01 p.m. on Wednesday? I released Baby Cannon's last video. Oh, a farewell. <laughs> yes, it, 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 Baby Cannon asked everyone to sing uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic with her. Bye-bye, Baby Cannon. Farewell. It's, it might be the one thing that's regrettable about the end of the Trump era. I personally just let out like a huge sigh of relief. And I wept a few tears. And then... I gritted my teeth and tensed my stomach until the president and vice president were safely inside the Capitol out of sniper range. I like thought that I would have like a single dignified tear roll down my cheek, but like it's somehow like allowing myself to experience emotion. I just like ugly cried from exhaustion and relief. And like, I think the inauguration just like hit that like perfect tone, the poet laureate, like just all of it. I was like, ugh. I spent the entire afternoon like wiping waterproof mascara as it like, you know, runs down my face. Totally. I think I started crying when the woman from the fire department signed the Pledge of Allegiance in American Sign Language. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the let's never do that again edition. <laughs> never. Please. Never, ever. Oh my God, we're so overcome and overwhelmed and overdone. We're clamped. We're clamped. Uh, in the, in the uh, astute words of uh, our 40, what was George Bush, our 43rd president, George W. Bush? That was some Indeed. weird shit. <laughs> that was some weird shit. Those four years were some weird shit, you guys. Yeah, yeah. Might we actually have a return to rational security now? Is that is that possible that we will finally, that the times will live up to our namesake? Like, we'll just be rendered obsolete, and each week we'll just be like, how yeah. are things going? I'll be like, it's great. Everything's great. How are you? No of this that we need Wait, to do. Hang on, guys. Can I just The world's so simple. It's fine now. Joe Biden's president. We can all go to sleep. <laughs> just kidding. We started this podcast before Donald Trump became president. In fact, this podcast is now six years old. Six. We're insane. The world was a more rational place back then. Yeah, so I think this is a... a Maybe we should shut it down. Maybe we're the problem. (laughs) (laughs) Our work here is done. Yeah, we've we've fucked up the world once. It's, uh, you know, better better we not give ourselves another chance. Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, today is the big day. It is January 20th, 2021. Joe Biden has taken the oath of office to become the 46th president of the United States. Uh, Today on the podcast, we're going to do a little last days, first days. Uh, We're going to look at how Donald Trump spent his last day in office and how Biden is spending his first. I I should say as a um, what I did at 12.01 p.m., by the way, I was actually uh, heartened when the clock finally ticked over because for about 15 minutes, it was unclear to me who actually was the president. So like, did you notice like, so 
Biden takes the oath and then the White House announces that the president has issued another pardon. Like he pardoned Judge Janine's ex-husband. And I'm like, wait, is he still president? What the fuck is going on? <laughs> and, and Biden was sworn in 10 minutes early, which yeah. they're not supposed to do. They're supposed to like drag it out. Who right? among us has not procrastinated a project and handed in a little bit after the deadline? There's a grace period <laughs> a to these things. It was very weird. And for a minute I was like, because then they did like Kamala Harris before him. And they did something else. And I'm like, wait, is Kamala Harris vice president and Donald Trump is the president? <laughs> that's true. That is true. Yes. 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 That's true. Yes. But then they kept, then they kept waiting. The question of whether the president becomes president at 1201 or on administration of the oath is an interesting one. And I, I'm going to have to like lawfare emergency podcast. I, I think <laughs> technically Lady Gaga was president just for like that yes, interim nanosecond. My my friend Jenny and I were texting, and she said um, she pointed out that um, if you looked at Twitter, the POTUS account flipped over to Biden. And in his bio, it says married to Flotus. But when you clicked on Flotus, it still went to Melania. <laughs> I, said I said it's a little known constitutional provision that they're married for 18 minutes. <laughs> and of course, this brings us to Marianne Williams Williamson. Uh, who, he does? Yeah. <laughs> when, because for those 18 minutes when Biden was married to Melania and nobody knew who was president. That was the moment when Marianne Williamson called up the prime minister of New Zealand and said, girlfriend, you are so on. (laughs) 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 She just seized the power for those 18 minutes. I I did like Lady Gaga's outfit. I feel like it's like if someone showed up to your wedding in a full white gown with a veil on, like just like, okay, all right, all right, we get it. She was exactly... So she like she walked by Michelle Obama afterwards and she said you could see her go, You look wonderful. And I think Michelle Obama's kinda like, Thanks. <laughs> right? You show up in like haute couture with this goddamn giant bird. <laughs> some, okay, thanks. <laughs> I look very nice. Alexandra Petri had the tweet of the inauguration. Uh what 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 did she she congratulated uh, Lady Gaga's uh, Lady dress on its success in the Hunger Games. Yes. It was very, very nice. A very, one person I saw tweeted, she said, like, I'm wearing this to my first day back in the office after I did the vaccine. All right. Well, let's start with uh, let's start with the last day, the last day of the presidency of Donald J. Trump. Uh, I guess, well, technically it went from like the 19th into the 20th. So really, I think the the big thing he seemed to spend his last day with Ben, let's go to you on this first, maybe obviously was pardons. Um, He I, I can't remember what time they actually dropped, but I went to bed last night before he'd actually put them out. And there was, you know, roughly what, 100 or so of them notably in there Steve Bannon his former what was he his campaign strategist consigliere general you know troublemaker uh, and Elliot Broidy uh, who has been wrapped up in a number of scandals and was uh, facing federal charges what did you make of the of the pardons i mean surprising unsurprising and i want to kind of get into what you make of the fact or we all make of the fact that he didn't pardon his kids or himself which people thought he might Yeah, so I guess my reaction to it was I was a little bit underwhelmed by it, actually. And perhaps that was because we had 
uh, all built up such an expectation that he was going to, you know, pardon himself, pardon the kids, pardon Rudy Giuliani. And kind of all we got was sort of a cut rate Bannon pardon with a, you know, a dollop of Paul Erickson. And, you know, these are... Um, Maria Butin as boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With the exception of Bannon himself, these are relatively low. They're precisely the kinds of, you know, fuck yous to people like us, the press, the people who care about Russia that you would kind of expect. The ethics people. The ethics people, the people who don't like bribery and purchase of pardons, you know, that sort of thing. Boring but people. That, that <laughs> you would expect. There were many more dramatic examples that he could have done that he didn't. And so I don't want to give him credit for that because when you're expecting high-grade corruption and self-dealing and you get low or mid-grade corruption or self-dealing, that's not really a a matter for congratulations or for admiration. But I do think I, I was surprised when I woke up and saw the list at how interesting it was not. So I have a question, maybe for Susan, the lawyer among us, or, or Ben, the pseudo lawyer among us, which is there was some speculation that the president didn't in the end pardon people who were potentially closer to his own misdeeds because they would then not have the ability to claim Fifth Amendment rights, or it might make it more likely that they would actually drop a dime on him. So, like, I, I found it actually really curious that he didn't pardon Jared or Ivanka, and it made me wonder, like, maybe this family really doesn't trust each other as much as they seem to. <laughs> So actually, I think this is an interesting and sort of difficult question. The, so the, like, is he better off having pardoned potential people who could uh, testify against him? Um, and it cuts both ways, because on one hand, you do forfeit your ability to to basically, um, you know, plead the Fifth Amendment uh, against self-incrimination. Although there's all kinds of ways to, to argue that, like, unless you've been pardoned for everything in the entire world, no matter what, amen, it still does technically apply. But at the same time, the way prosecutors incentivize people to cooperate is whenever they themselves uh, face legal liability. So actually, I, I think it's something that like that really does cut both ways. And I actually don't know, um, like strategically stepping back, whether like, what is the smarter decision? At, at this point, though, I don't expect that we're going to see kind of any follow on investigations uh, involving those people. Um, and my, my personal sense of the reason why he didn't pardon himself and his kids is that uh, Mitch McConnell sort of uh, gave a, a pretty sharply worded speech. And so by the end, the framing was how many pardons and how many abusive pardons can I get away with um, without it being the thing that the Senate finally says, like, we're going to convict you and bar you from being able to run again. And I actually think there are a lot of interesting questions about what happens if he actually is convicted and disqualified from holding further office. His use of leftover campaign funds 
refunds, all kinds of things. And so uh, my gut is, is that's the case. Um, you know, look, I agree with everything Ben said about like, we had this whole expectation and it was kind of like, oh, you know, all right, just like regular corruption. That said, like Bill Clinton pardoned his brother and Mark Rich. And we like, we talk, we still talk about it today. There was like, there was bipartisan outrage, um, right? This, this real sense of, um, uh, of sort of like normatively attempting to reinforce, you know, sort of the, the boundaries and protections around this power. Um, and so I, I do have to wonder, like, if the collective reaction is just like, oh, meh, like just like ordinary presidential selling of pardons, um, uh, you know, and as we learn more and more over time about how these individuals came to be on the list and who paid who for what, like, how do we go about restoring, um, you know, those expectations and uh, and sort of boundaries? Um, and, you know, the, the contrast between, uh, you know, Donald Trump's pardon spree and the federal government's execution spree in the final days. Um, one thing that I had sort of hoped for, and maybe it's stupid to think this after four years of being proven wrong, but I had hoped he actually might include some meritorious pardons as well, that while he was doing this big, crazy thing, um, you know, maybe Kim Kardashian would get his ear, right? Maybe there actually would be this big group of people where he didn't know the right reasons he was doing, but there were well, good hip hop people, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Little Wayne, um, right. not the Tiger King, um, and but we we didn't actually see that. We saw a bunch of people who were um, personally and politically connected to him, and, and and not like you know good and decent and important pardons in the group. Well, and to that point, it strikes me that the way he issued these pardons, and frankly, maybe even his goodbye speech, which we, can, which we can talk about in a bit, is through the lens of what he expects to happen in his next act, right? So you don't pardon your kids and yourself, because if you do, you are just begging the Senate to go ahead and convict you. You're making it so easy for them. Um, or frankly, you're begging somebody to challenge your attempt to pardon yourself. You pardon Steve Bannon because you think he will be useful in whatever sort of conspiratorial platform you're going to use to launch yourself into, you know, his next money-making venture or, you know, perhaps a run at the White House, if, if that's if, if he's not prevented from doing that by the Senate. So to me, it was just sort of people who prevailed upon him in the final days, among them were his attorneys who said, or his legal advisors in the White House, who said, look, you face liability for all of these actions in these final moments. And I think that the threat of litigation is one of the few things that seems to actually break through to him. Um, so I kind of look at the pardon spree at the end is, is that, you know, don't piss off the powerful people and do favors for the people who you think might be useful to you, including Elliot Broidy, by the way. Yeah. So I think this is a really interesting point, and it goes to something that I've never really gotten my hands around with Trump, which is when he does and when he doesn't experience threat. You know, like your description, I think, may well be right, that he kind of makes a tactical decision, go easy on this because his lawyers are warning him of possible liability, you know, there could be criminal liability if there were evidence that these pardons were stole, uh, sold. It could be, it could be understood in the context of an obstruction investigation, etc. So, like, and all of that is perfectly sensible if you were dealing with a, a normal person who experiences threat normally. But Trump doesn't. And he behaves recklessly with respect to threat, including warned about threat all the time. And so while I don't doubt that you're right, 
it does make me scratch my head and say, well, why does he behave rationally in, a, in response to advice from counsel this time and not all the other times? And I, I do think the, the one of the things that I've really never understood about Donald Trump, and I'm no closer to understanding now than I was, you know, in the summer of 2016, is like, when does he perceive, no, I don't want to do that because it would be too risky. And when does he not perceive that? I mean, I actually think one of the most hilarious and plausible explanations is that he was convinced he could not actually pardon himself and effectively do it. Um, and so reportedly, part of his attitude was, well, if I can't get a pardon, then none of you can either. Um, yeah. And just kind of like it was like a petty thing. That's totally plausible to me. And that's, yeah. and that's the way I would feel about it. You know, if I, if I were, <laughs> if I had the pardon, Susan, and and I couldn't get mm-hmm. a piece of it myself, you couldn't expect. Yeah, you'd be going down with him that's right drag it he's gonna drag you right down with him well the the memoir i most want to read is pat cipollone's the the Mm. white house counsel Mm -hmm. who does seem like he has sort of the final days uh fly on the wall more than that uh, you know what though i'm not reading any of those memoirs (laughs) i don't give a shit about what any of those people have to say also, for the listeners, there's a lot more Trump books coming. Like, you think that we've turned the page. Like, uh, there's more. <laughs> there are three of them coming out of people in my own office. <laughs> I'm holding out for Kaylee McEnany's memoir. Oh That's the God. one that I think is really going to shed important. Florida woman, a memoir. <laughs> she can write it when she's not working at her father's hot tub store outside of Orlando or wherever the hell she's going. I don't know if he owns a hot tub store, but she's probably going back to Florida. Let's talk a little bit just about the military send off that Trump had that I want to get to some of his final actual decisions and rescissions. Uh, you know, he uh, notably uh, took Marine One to Andrews Air Force Base, where he then boarded Air Force One to land in Florida at 11. So the plane was still his. So he didn't have to ask the the next president for permission and to borrow a ride or, you know, get a plane Uber or whatever. Obviously, there were very few people who turned out for this ceremony to wish him well. It seemed like a campaign rally. But again, this kind of goes maybe to my theory of he's thinking about his next act. This was also a bit underwhelming, you know, saying like, will he said, we'll be back in some form, which made me think like what, like as like, Ectoplasm? If you strike me down, I will come back more powerful than you could possibly imagine. Right. It was just so weird and kind of like uh, underwhelming. Um, but notably, I thought he did not say, and of course, I won the election. And he did not mention Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, but he did say, you know, I wish the next administration luck. Then was quick to say, I think they'll be okay because we set them up well. But it was just like, even for Trump, like this minor modulation in tone was notable and, and and I thought interesting. And I'm curious if you guys made anything of it or did it just seem kind of just sad, frankly? I mean, to me, it just seemed like um he's defeated. It didn't work. Um, and he's always more subdued in those moments, right? Like, remember the the images of him, you know, walking, trudging across the, you know, away from his helicopter, kind of downtrodden moments in his presidency. Um, I don't think it's like it's the great new introspective Trump that we're going to see in the future, which it's not right. what you're suggesting. But to the extent that there's there's any of that sort of conscious tone shift, um, it's just that uh, Donald Trump realizes that um the attention is going away and like. 
like any sad and depressed about it. Now he's going to, you know, ride off into the sunset. And I, I do think that we'll see him sort of lash out and try and recapture the public conversation. But one thing that I think will play an interesting factor is with this sort of threat of the Senate uh, conviction looming over him, you know, he's going to form a new political party. He's going to do all these things. I bet he kind of keeps his head down until uh, he's in the clear for that, um, because that's one way to really incentivize Mitch McConnell to disqualify him from holding office in the future. Yeah, I I suspect that the the mention of forming a new party was itself an attempt at blackmailing the Senate. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that little game of chicken plays out. But my my take, Shane, on the slight modulation was that it was, yes, Trump in defeat, but it was also just an acknowledgement that, like, he is leaving. They're not dragging him out by the shoulders. And given that he's leaving, he cannot say they stole it from us. You can't let them do this like that. That tactic was played out. That narrative was played out. So even though there are all of these Americans who still believe that, he's abandoned that narrative because it doesn't work for him anymore. And we've seen him do this over and over again, just revise the story completely when it doesn't suit his purposes anymore. So he's moved on. The QAnon folks haven't. The Stop the Steal folks haven't. But he's moved on and he'll come up with a new narrative, whatever it is. We'll hear it, you know, in a week or two. And what's going to be interesting, too, and I mean, and I, and I want to preface this by saying, count me firmly in the camp of American journalists who believe that we do not cover ex-presidents and, you know, and we have an administration to cover. And I don't want to spend, I have no intention of spending even a small fraction of my time covering Donald Trump in the future, nor do I think that that's an appropriate thing for us to do, given the enormity of the things that are facing the country. But he is a political force, and not to sound glib about it, but what good is he without his Twitter account? I mean, if he has been, had this has been taken away, this is more than just some kind of place for him to spout out. This is his command and control infrastructure, uh, or at least his communications infrastructure. And it's been obliterated. And I don't see any indication that Twitter plans to give him the keys back. Yeah. So, a couple things on that. First, I totally agree with you that the instinct of a lot of reporters and a lot of editors will be, as my friend Michael Sean Winters, uh, who's a Vatican watcher, likes to say, there's nobody deader than a dead pope. And, you know, that there's, you know, there's nobody exer than an ex-president, right? And nobody covered Ronald Reagan or Jimmy Carter after they left office. And their opinions, you know, Jimmy Carter mattered when he you know, built houses for people in a kind of humanitarian fashion, but he didn't, his political opinions didn't matter at all. Donald Trump has spent an entire career getting people to cover things that they objectively think don't matter. And the challenge is he is going to spend the next few years trying to manipulate people like you into into despite that commitment, despite that understanding, behaving differently than than you think. Now, can he do it without his Twitter account? Unclear. But if we had asked, could you use Twitter to do it? We would have all said no. And so like he is actually good at this. 
and his ability to manipulate people into turning the camera on him is pretty substantial. And by the way, you know, he does control enough money to buy the cameras. And so I wouldn't be surprised whether it's Trump TV or what OANN becomes or, you know, a primetime show on Fox, you know, whether he can develop some alternative command and control infrastructure uh, or just hijack Sean Hannity's, you know, I, I totally agree with your instinct and with, I think lots of people will agree with you. And the question is whether they'll be able to behave that way. But I think we actually, I think this conversation is getting the cause and effect wrong. Um, so the reason why the press, it's not, the reason why the press doesn't cover former presidents is not because the press makes a decision not to cover former presidents. It's because there's this agreement of the former presidents club, this very, very strong normative agreement to not weigh in, right? This is uh, George W. Bush. I owe him my silence. Um, you know, even Obama really, really hesitating to comment on Trump in sort of those early wild days of his administration. We saw, you know, sort of George W. Bush not wanting to comment on Trump. And so I, I think the challenge, yes, it will be how does the press handle this moment? Um, but it's not as though it's the press that's made this sort of decision. It's that former presidents have not done this. And, you know, the the rules like Donald Trump is no longer the original classification authority. He's not allowed to talk about all this stuff. And so how is he going to certainly he's not going to like maintain respectful silence because he's a very dignified person. Um, but like how he navigates this moving forward is, I think, like one legally a super fraught and perilous thing for him, um, but also like very, very complicated for the media to to decide how to move forward. Yeah, so I I think Susan's right that you know because when former presidents have spoken out, like when Jimmy Carter had strong opinions or would do his own like private back channel diplomacy with North Korea or whatever, he would get covered for that. So that that's number one. And Trump is not going to, you know, be part of that former president's club dignified practice for sure. The other thing is that he's not just an ex-president. He's a potential presidential candidate. And that is why I think, Shane, your colleagues in the media are not going to be able to restrain themselves. They're going to be like all over him like a wetsuit looking for any hint that he's about to declare any hint that he's going to, you know, found this new party. If he had admitted defeat right after the election, he would not have the resources to play the game of footsie he's going to play with the political reporters now. But he, because of the whole Stop the Steal campaign, he has hundreds of millions of dollars in his super PAC, which he can spend in a very flexible manner. And he has... I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of small dollar donor emails. So no, he doesn't have Twitter, but he does have a lot of emails. He's got quite a network. And I think that if he wants to build that audience, he can. All right. Well, in the spirit of moving on, let's talk about Joe Biden. Oh, thank God. Yes. Let's talk about Joe the Biden. The old and with the new. <laughs> um, all right. So, so first days, um, obviously, uh, uh, he, he'll have a busier day later. We'll talk about some of the executive actions he plans to take, but first let's just talk briefly, uh, about 
the speech itself. I mean, the inaugural ceremony was unlike one we've seen in our lifetimes. I mean, there was really, there were very few people there. You did not have the crowds on the mall. The crowd size sucked. <laughs> yeah, that's, Shift Trump had a tweet, tweet right now. He'd say Joe Biden had the lowest crowd size of any yeah. inauguration. And he'd say it unironically. But obviously COVID prevented gatherings. Uh, there also was the uh, the threat of possible follow-ups to the January 6th attack on the Capitol, which thankfully, as of now, when we're recording, appear not to have occurred either at the Capitol or other state capitals where it was feared that some of these right-wing extremist groups might try to. Yeah, so far. So it seems like Inauguration Day is passing uh, without incident. But let's talk about you know, thematically, this speech, um, you know, what you guys thought was notable uh, from a foreign policy perspective, there was a little bit of that. Um, Who wants to start? Yeah, I mean, from a foreign policy perspective, there was actually less in this inaugural than there are in most inaugurals on foreign policy. There was like a very brief paragraph that was basically like, we're going to rebuild alliances and the power of our example. Wahoo. (laughs) Hard for anyone to disagree with. I think that what I really loved about it is that it is the tone of confidence in our future while not being Pollyannish about our past or our present. So that it combined a sort of humility about the moment and an understanding of the challenge with confidence. And I think that that is important not only for the national conversation, but I think it's very important for the international conversation because as we've seen, you know, beginning with the uh, the George Floyd protests last summer, when the United States is facing domestic turmoil and division, it leads adversaries abroad to declare us irrelevant or weak or feckless or whatever. And it makes our friends worry about us. And both those things make us less credible and less effective and less influential abroad. And so I think that striking the tone of humility with determination to make progress is the way to address that inevitable challenge. So one thing I thought that was interesting was sort of the overt and explicit calls to unity with also very, very direct references to domestic terrorism, to white supremacy and to what happened on January 6th. Um, So there's always a little bit of a temptation whenever we're talking about, um, you know, how do you unify, Um, like not pointing out the bad stuff, making other people sort of comfortable, um, making Republicans sitting uh, up there on the dais with him comfortable um, and sort of, uh, you know, maybe obliquely referencing it, but not saying directly, um, you know, a number of speakers, uh, including uh, including Biden, including Kamala Harris, um, including Amy Klobuchar, including Roy Blunt, right? So Republicans as well made direct references to what happened on January 6th, uh, you know, that, that they were standing here in the weeks after this attack and that they were standing united to move forward together. And I think that's a really interesting message to send. And that unity here is not about uh, making everybody feel comfortable. It's about saying we have certain commitments that matter more than our policy differences. We are reaffirming them in this moment and we are moving forward. Um, and I was surprised um, to, to sort of hear the explicit references, especially to sort of the white supremacy and domestic terrorism pieces in, in Biden's speech. Um, you know, that was a pretty direct call, um, sort of the, the, the direct comment, um, you know, 
we will confront this. We will defeat this. This is not new, um, right? Sort of hearkening back to, you know, you aren't some new uh, novel force that's going to overcome the United States. Like you're the same old people who, you know, used to wear hoods and, and be parts of other, uh, you know, uh, violent mobs uh, in the bad old days. And so I think that's a, I thought that was a, a really smart tone to hit and, and a challenging one. Um, you know, it, it had to have been an uncomfortable moment for plenty of people sitting up there behind him. To me, the interesting thing about the speech was how little policy there was. And mm -hmm. normally in a, in a lot of inauguration, inaugural speeches, the, the, you know, I'm going to be a president for all Americans is kind of the, you know, a paragraph. And then it's, and dismissible, like and, it's pro forma. And here's, <laughs> you know, and here, here's the list, the laundry list of things I want to do, right? And uh, this was not that. This operated almost entirely at the thematic level. It was a insistence, as Susan says, on on this idea that we are going to move forward. It was a plea to people to believe that that is possible, right? And to not, not forget to talk to people who disagree with them. And then it was also, and I think this is a, you know, a, an argument against the culture that is developing of disinformation, of factual manipulation, and of lack of belief in truth. And I think the big message of it is it actually reminded me a little bit of Rodney King's speech when the night of the L.A. riots in the early 90s. So somebody shoved a microphone in his face and said, can't we all just get along, people? And it was like the, the, the inc this incredibly moving simplicity of it. And this is a person of... of enormous political sophistication and a great deal who knows all the difficulties of these things. And yet it comes down to, don't please, don't forget to just get along. And the part where we actually have to live with each other matters. And I think like, I think it's a pretty interesting thing to give an inaugural address at that level of generality. And I, and I kind of, you know, I'm a sucker for it because I, I believe in that stuff. Can I can I say, though, like, I, I don't think it was like Rodney King at all, because Rodney King was basically saying that in a sort of passive way, like, wow, this sucks. Can't we all like you all just get along? Whereas Biden, I think, was doing something different. He was saying he talked about truth and honesty a lot as a as like a core standard, along with loyalty and what he did in this thematic address was lay out quite clearly the difference between patriotic opposition and and terrorism and white supremacy. Like the, he did, he didn't say I'm drawing a line in the sand, but there in the text of the speech was a very bright line. Yeah. You can disagree with me about whatever you want, but if you use violence, uh, uh. You can disagree with me about whatever you want, but if you invent facts, uh-uh. And so it really was like, yes, a call to all those people who might have been caught up in the moment or caught up in opposition and saying to them, don't step over that line. 
You can you can avoid stepping over that line. Let's marginalize those people. But I also think he's saying to people on his own side, I got to deal with this Mitch McConnell guy who's sitting over here looking, by the way, more relieved than just about anybody else on that day as he was sitting there blissed out. But that's another story. He's saying, I got to deal with him and don't tell me not to try. So let's talk about some of the things that Biden has said he's going to do on his first day. As we're recording this, I think that he and the other living former presidents minus Carter and Trump are out at Arlington laying a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown. And then he will go back to the White House later this afternoon and the evening is going to start signing some executive orders. Ben, one of the first things he's going to do uh, is rescind the so-called Muslim ban, uh, the Trump executive order, which was among the first orders that Trump uh, issued when he was in office. And I, and I think, do I have it right? If memory serves, was it was it that executive order that occasioned you and Quinta to write uh, the formulation that still, I think, is the correct metric for the presidency, which is, will it turn out to be malevolence tempered by incompetence? Yeah, uh, that that headline and that phrase was written by me vamping on a text Quinta had sent me in response. It was the seventh day of the Trump presidency. So I think it was it was the 27th. It was the same day he had lunch with Comey and demanded loyalty or dinner, forget which. And uh, the same day he uh, signs the, the Muslim ban. So, so his rescinding of that is going to do what? And then let's talk about some of the other things like rejoining the Paris Climate Accords and stuff that he's going to, that Biden can do, you know, basically from day one. So the most significant thing about rescinding the travel ban. So rescinding the travel ban has a huge practical consequence, which is that there are a great many Americans and American permanent residents who cannot see their family members. This is particularly true of Iranian Americans, where, you know, if you're from Iran, you, you are generally categorically banned from entering the United States right now. Uh, subject to certain exceptions, and that and there's a you know a lot of American citizens have immediate family who are Iranian, and you know I, some of my friends can have not seen like their grandmothers in a really really long time because of this. It's not so easy for Americans to go to Iran either. So you know that's a huge humanitarian consequence that will happen right away. More generally, uh, it will. I mean, people aren't doing a lot of traveling now in general, so it's not, you know, but in the longer term, there are a bunch of people from covered countries who would normally study in the United States, uh, who come to the United States to do one sort or another of business or uh, academic exchanges. And these are have just been largely cut off uh, for the last four years. And it's a wonderful thing that that will change. Yeah, I think there are ways, though, in which Biden's first week um, might be a little bit less of the flurry of activity that we've come to expect in sort of that that first period in in which presidents assume office. Um, So one is that he's going to have to be way more focused on confirmation. So ordinarily, presidents take office with at least a handful of cabinet members confirmed. I think Trump already had six confirmed members of the cabinet uh, when he was sworn in because the Senate works to, you know, to get those confirmations done and, and ready 
to get to work, uh, you know, immediately at the start of the new administration. Biden has no confirmed nominees yet. Um, and so uh, it's going to take some time uh, in sort of deciding how to um, balance the question of acting immediately versus waiting for the new confirmed leadership um, to come in and then sort of execute those things. Um, that's going to be a little bit of a, more of a delay. Obviously, as well, sort of coronavirus is like is going to be the main priority. I think it's really notable. Um, the first person he asked for the resignation of is Jerome Adams, um, the Surgeon General of the United States. An indication, right? Adams, who was not like a big Trumpist or, or anything, but um, an indication that the thing Biden really, really cares about on day one is installing his own leadership on the pandemic, charting a new course, having a new direction. And that's going to be his priority one focus. And I think those are two areas in which the like the pace of executive orders might be a little bit slower than we're used to in the past of like, you know, that first week, just kind of, you know, 30 executive orders a day kind of hitting you nonstop. Yeah, I, I think they one of the things they did that was interesting, I don't remember previous administrations doing this quite so explicitly, but they issued press releases yesterday, one with a list of actions by the like regulations and other actions by the previous administration that they were going to immediately reverse by agency. I think the EPA had the longest list. It had like 34 things that they were immediately going to reverse. And then they publicized a release with a list of executive orders that they were going to sign on the first day. And while I think Susan's absolutely right that, you know, it's COVID, 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 and more broadly, a domestic focus I, I do think that it's notable that of all of the nominees, the national security nominees are the only ones who got hearings before Inauguration Day. They are going to be the first ones confirmed. And the administration, um, the transition worked very hard to put in place mid-level sort of deputy assistant secretary and chief of staff kind of people on day one. Uh, including a long list of positions in the Defense Department that they released also this week. So, you know, they're not headlining the national security stuff, but both they and the Congress are putting a premium on making sure it gets done. Yeah. Also, Tammy mentioned, you know, sort of the Defense Department announcements. Um, obviously, Lloyd Austin's hearings are this week. Um, also, sort of remembering that the honeymoon is going to be pretty short here. Like already, there's both uh, not just reason for Republicans to criticize Biden, but also, you know, for progressives to criticize Biden. So um, sort of the decision, uh, whether it came from the incoming administration or came from the House itself to, to basically cancel hearings over this independent question of whether or not to grant Lloyd Austin a uh, a waiver from the statutory requirement of seven years, um, sort of to do away with that in, um, and instead just have these sort of private hearings and, and kind of shove the, the issue away. Um, you know, that's an interesting message to send in one of the very first decisions on a, on a campaign, you know, that was really based on the idea of restoration, rebuilding norms, um, to kind of double down on one of uh, the significant norms that Trump breached and not to, not to debate it head on, right? To just kind of say, all right, let's not talk about it, just get him into office and la 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 la. And didn't he use, Biden use some of the same questionable bureaucratic and legal jujitsu to appoint an acting attorney general at the Department of Justice while he's waiting for his AG to be confirmed? There was something in a New York Times report on that, that there's, I mean, basically appointing, you know, a fairly low level 
uh, leadership person at, at DOJ to take over, but doing it with the same kind of technique that was basically used to put Whitaker uh, as the acting AG? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm actually, as you say this, I realize I don't even know who is the acting attorney general right now. That's interesting. And I can't remember his name, so that tells you something. But they, but what they did do is they they made a number of you know not super senior career people acting at Treasury, at the State Department. It sounds like at the Justice Department as well because they were very determined to clean house of everyone political. So they didn't let political stay, you know, even one extra day, even if they weren't agency heads. And, you know, okay, you can understand it. I I also, can we just pause for a moment on this normative point? The confirmation hearing for Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary designate, you know, looked like it was being fast tracked along with DOD and the State Department and ODNI. And then all of a sudden, who put a hold on it? Why, it's Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley, the provocateur of domestic terrorism, doesn't want the Homeland Security Secretary who's going to go after domestic terrorists. And he says that it's because of concerns about immigration policy. Well, the White House sent up its immigration bill, dude. You can read it if you want to. So let's not pretend this is grandstanding about immigration. I find this really troubling optics, and I would love to see people challenging Josh Hawley on this. It's outrageous. Okay, to go back to the acting attorney general, while Tammy was railing against Josh Hawley, I looked Doesn't up- Doesn't he deserve it? Oh, yeah. The Lord's work. Bumping to give you time to look up the AG. Yes. <laughs> the, the acting AG, as of a few hours ago, is Monty Wilkinson, yes. who is a, uh, a longtime career Justice Department lawyer. And yes, Shane, you are correct. The mechanism used to avoid having John Demers, who is the uh, assistant attorney general or wa- was for the National Security Division be acting because he's Senate confirmed is the same legal opinion that Democrats uh, objected to and is uh, almost certainly is in fact objectionable to circumvent Rod Rosenstein's being acting attorney general and making Matt Whitaker acting attorney general. It's a bad thing. And Monty Wilkinson is a good and decent person who is not an objectionable figure the way uh, Matt Whitaker was. But actually, John Demers is a decent and fine public servant as well. And uh, the fear of having him be acting attorney general uh, shouldn't have led this to happen, in my view. Right. So everything's still snap back as much as we think. Yeah. Right. I also think we should note there's not um, the difference between a low, like low level versus low profile. So this is someone who's been in the department for a long time, also right. been in, the, been in uh, human resources. So um, in a caretaker staffing role, I, I think it a little bit sends a message of that's the intention, somebody who's going to come in and help facilitate the, the onboarding and staffing and somebody who knows that well, um, rather than kind of a substantive policy voice. Or to Tammy's point, the Senate could just, you know, hurry up and confirm Merrick Garland as the attorney general. Yeah, it's right. also, th- that's the other factor, which is that 
Matt Whitaker was appointed and then left there without a nominee. Yeah. And it, you know, and that was right around the Trump time that Trump said, I like acting. It gives me more flexibility. And so there was some question as to A, whether he would be nominated, B, whether he would just be left in an acting role. And he had immediate supervision over Bob Mueller. And so there was something particularly objectionable about what happened with Matt Whitaker that isn't present here. This will just be for a few days. Actually, didn't Matt Whitaker actually was a hot tub salesman? I thought he sold toilets for well-endowed men. Oh, no. yeah. Guys, we're looking forward, not back. Forward, Sorry, not back. sorry. Truth and reconciliation, Tammy. I'm just here to present the facts that he was not <laughs> a hot tub salesman. Not to be confused with the Steve Bannon acid hot tub. Oh, this is God. the toilet one. It's hard uh, to keep them all straight. If pardoning Steve Bannon means we don't have to hear from him anymore, then count me in. Um, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I'll go first because I like Ben and Tammy's better than mine. They're more uplifting. <laughs> but I just want to recommend an article, not terribly uplifting, but it's it's a tremendous piece of reporting, in my opinion, by my colleague Peter Herman at The Post, which ran last Thursday. So it's about a week old now. But it is basically a kind of narrative of the riots told, for the capital riots told from the point of view uh, of a few of the police officers who were there, including uh, uh, Michael Fanone. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. Who's a DC police officer and one of his colleagues, as well as another officer who uh, was there, who people may have seen video of him. He was the young officer who was, uh, his name is Daniel Hodges, who was nearly crushed uh, in a door as he and his colleagues were trying to hold protesters back and they took off his mask and began beating him with it in the face. It's an extraordinary piece of reporting. And I think, though, it's in addition to being a great read, it's important because it starts to try to answer one of the questions that I think a lot of people had, which was, you know, putting aside some of the Capitol Police officers that appeared to be having a kind of lackadaisical approach to the protests, in some cases, even holding doors open for them. You know, people were asking, why didn't they use more force? Why didn't they shoot these people who were coming into the Capitol? And these officers actually directly address that. And they have some pretty uh, chilling things to say, which uh, basically come down to, we were afraid that if we started shooting them, they would outnumber us and grab our guns and shoot us. Uh, And we knew that they were collecting weapons. Um, So it's really, I mean, a view into, at least for the case of some of these officers, the fairly remarkable restraint that they showed in a moment when they were fearing for their lives. Uh, So it's really just a powerful kind of empathetic account of this. By no means does it settle the issues of the, I think, objective failures in policing and security that happened at the Capitol, but uh, it's a powerful reminder of what some of these officers were up against. And uh, I personally walked away with a uh, new level of respect for some of them. So with that, Ben, why don't you go second? Well, more than four years ago, I don't remember exactly when, um, but it was sometime in the late Obama administration I had a weird day when I had an appointment with two, count them, two heads of the National Security Division at Justice in a row. I had a meeting with John Carlin, who was the then sitting head of the office, head of the Senate. Who's coming back. Who's coming back. And I had uh, immediately after it, I was supposed to meet one of his predecessors, David Chris, for a drink. And so... I am leaving the Justice Department. I'm wearing a suit because, you know, I had, it was a meeting at the Justice Department with a senior official. So I did you have a, a dog tie on? 
uh, I had, you know, a little tie and a, the whole, the whole like Washington dress thing. And I walk outside and I decide it's only a few blocks to the Hotel Sofitel, where at whose bar I'm going to meet David. So I decide to walk, even though it's kind of looks like it is going to rain. I get about a block and a half and the sky just opens up and there is not a cab anywhere around. And so I had to walk to the Hotel Sofitel. By the time I got there, I was drenched to the bone in this suit. And I realized I couldn't actually meet David Chris for a drink like this because I would melt. And so I looked around to find a place to buy some clothes. And the only place that is open is this store called the White House Gift Shop, which we were right next to the White House, is not, for those who uh, uh, don't know the place, is not actually uh, run by the White House. It is just called the White House Gift Shop. It sells super expensive presidential memorabilia of a particularly kitschy variety. And I go in there and I look for a White House t-shirt. The only White House t-shirt they have, because they're very snooty, is this super fancy $35, $40 shirt with the presidential seal embroidered in it. And uh, so I kind of bit my lip and I bought a presidential seal embroidered shirt. And I go into the bathroom at the Hotel Sofitel and put all my super wet laundry into a plastic bag and go meet David wearing this presidential seal shirt. Four years ago to this day, I packed it up and I put it in a drawer and I tweeted a picture of it and said I would take it out again when I could be proud of the presidency again. So today uh, I got up this morning, I am wearing the presidential seal shirt and uh, it feels good. It looks good too. It's a nice yeah. shirt. Looks like it looks expensive. Uh, Tammy. Okay, so my object is this lovely gold fluted champagne flute. Why is it so special? It's special because of the gold inaugural seal. Yes, this and another champagne flute just like it that says inauguration of the president and vice president Biden Harris 2021. This was part of my official inaugural deluxe party box, which I received in the mail after purchasing at the Biden inaugural website. And so uh, we had confetti, we had balloons, we had silly cutout faces of Joe and Kamala. We had a sign calling for unity and we had pink champagne in these oh, two champagne flutes to celebrate the inauguration. So you did have a little drink. That's that's excellent. You put them to good use. <laughs> you couldn't tell from my affect in podcast <laughs> why, yes, I had champagne at noon. <laughs> we usually we drink on the podcast at 2.30, but no, that's yeah. that's great. And those are those are lovely glasses. Thank you. I'm very happy to have these. I mean, anything gold rimmed gives me flashbacks and, you know, to uh, to, to, to yeah, the previous document. Yeah. But in this case, we're taking gold back. We're taking appropriate we're uses of gold. It. Yeah, reclaiming it. And now you can reclaim the hour. Well, you can't reclaim the hour of your time that you spent listening. No, to we us, got That it. is the end of the pun. If you're hearing this now, <laughs> it belongs to us. You're out. <laughs> <laughs> rational security is of course a production of lawfare you can find i mean we should get some you we actually have rational security glasses they're not gold 
but they're on um, goldenglassware.rational. Yeah, you can get your Rational Security Rocks glasses at rationalsecurityrocksglasses.com. Which, no, no. silly. Thelawfarestore.com. <laughs> I actually don't even know it. I still don't remember. It's storelaw.fair. Okay. Stop confusing the masses, Shane. I depend on you to set it straight. Lawfarestore.com. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. We're still on Twitter. Do we have a uh, parlor account too? Oh, no. <laughs> Do those still exist? Oh, that's in Russia now. They're hosting it in Russia. We're not getting an account that's hosted in Russia, Susan. You should know better. (laughs) (laughs) You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It helps us out and helps others find the show. And we're going to be talking about different topics for the next normal rational normal, topics rational topics but they'll still we'll still have a good time doing it our audio engineer this week is zachary frank of goat rodeo the show is produced and edited by jen patia howell uh, music this week by joe biden j-lo and that bird from lady gaga's dress uh the former <laughs> new band uh, biden from the block oh, nice. it's good right <laughs> didn't you kind of want her to like just like do some like oh, classic yeah. j-lo yeah. She kind of did. Like the like get louder. That was like a little Remember that? It was a little it was a tiny bit, but yeah. I was like I wanted her to like throw off the white thing and she'd have some sort of like crazy spandex like metal spandex on. dress yeah, and just grinds totally. all over Mike and Mother Pence and 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 Lady Gaga's skirt could have just come off and got Oh my god. Right. I think Lady Gaga had like an entourage. And then they parachute, they like parasail over the Washington oh, Monument. Why couldn't they have done that? This inauguration sucked. <laughs> <laughs> Huge missed opportunities here. Sophia Yan should have been in charge of it. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. You may now exhale. <sighs> Talk to you next week, guys. We made it. Bye bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.